All right, good morning. Welcome again to Hiawatha. Uh, this summer, we have been going through a sermon series called Big Questions, where uh, all of you emailed or wrote on your communication cards or just came and told us different questions you had about Jesus or God or the Bible or theology or whatever about life. And we've been going through and preaching those questions this summer. And this Sunday is the last Sunday of that uh, for now. So a few quick things about the big questions before we get to this Sunday's. Uh, if you're one of the people who wrote a question that was not answered, you might be thinking, why didn't they do my question? And the reason is not because your question was bad or because we didn't want to, but we just had more questions than we had weeks. So there are a few that didn't get answered. But for those questions that we weren't able to preach on, uh, for the ones that we know who sent it, we will email you a response, so at least you will have some answer to that question. And then uh, as you read that, if you have more questions or want to get together and talk about that, any of the elders or pastors would be happy to do that. We'd love to have those conversations. But unfortunately, we only had, what, 13 or 14 weeks, and we had more questions than that, so we just weren't able to answer all of them. Then also a little bit about me. My name's Jesse. I'm an elder here at Hiawatha. Uh, being Memorial Day weekend, uh, the pastors get the weekend off from preaching, and so I'm here preaching this morning, which is great. I love it. And I'm excited for this Sunday's question. So without further ado, this Sunday is spiritual warfare. So there you go. Jesus and Satan arm wrestling. So... Um, yeah, <laughs> about that. So this is a cool picture in a lot of ways, but this picture is, in almost every way possible, uh, a very bad, like theologically bad, biblically bad, just a horrible picture of what spiritual warfare actually is. So uh, if you think spiritual warfare is like this, you are quite wrong. And we will talk about that, because a lot of people in different ways have this picture of spiritual warfare, but this is not it. But I was Googling images and saw it. It's like, ooh, I just have to put it in. But can I put it in? It's just so bad. Like, it's just wrong in every way. But I have to put it in. So I did. Uh, so we'll come back to that and talk about that a little bit later. Um, but first, let's pray. And then we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 today, a pretty standard passage for talking about spiritual warfare. And we're going to walk through most of that passage. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would bring uh, clarity, encouragement, and conviction to all of us on the topic of spiritual warfare. Jesus, we thank you that you are the great warrior who has fought for us, and we thank you that uh, your battle against Satan and sin and death is not like that picture, but is much more encouraging, and victory is much more sure. I pray that you would speak through me this morning. Amen. All right, Ephesians 6. Verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, 
and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. All right, so the three questions we're going to answer today, today, one, what is spiritual warfare? Some of you may not have heard that phrase or not be familiar with it, and just what is it? And then two, who is our enemy? If there's warfare going on, usually in war, you have an enemy you're fighting against, so who are we fighting? And then the third question, uh, how do we wage this war? How is spiritual warfare waged? So the first one, what is spiritual warfare? From verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So spiritual warfare is war. It is a wrestling, a conflict, a fight, a battle. Not against people, not against flesh and blood. Ultimately, it's easy, just in general in life, and even as believers, as we think specifically of the gospel and things that come against the gospel, it can be easy to think of people as our enemies, that people are the ones uh, holding down the truth of the gospel or coming into conflict with us. And on one level, that's true, but ultimately, people are not our enemy, ever. Even people in the world who are doing great evil, who are doing things against the gospel, uh, from our temporal perspective, doing great harm to the gospel, ultimately, those people are not our enemy. Ultimately, ultimately our enemy is supernatural. And look at the words verse 12 uses to describe this enemy. This enemy is called a ruler, an authority, a power, a force of evil. So this is a strong enemy. This enemy is not weak. So then, what do you do with that? How do we fight an enemy that isn't a person, isn't someone we can see or interact with? How do we fight this kind of nebulous idea of this spiritual, supernatural enemy? Like, what does that even mean? Well, let's find out a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about our enemy. So, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So, ultimately, supernaturally, our enemy is the devil. Now, we have a few other enemies that are big. Sin and death are also two big enemies uh, of the Christian. And Jesus has dealt with all three of these enemies in different ways. But for the purpose of today's sermon, we're going to focus mainly on Satan as the enemy. Uh, sin and death are also enemies that have been defeated. We'll briefly touch on that, but we're going to focus more on Satan as an enemy. So in this sermon, I'm going to use the words Satan and devil interchangeably. Uh, they're two different names for the same being. Satan, uh, the Greek word means adversary or enemy. And devil, the Greek word means accuser. So our enemy our adversary is also our accuser, one who comes before God and says, man, did you see what Jesse did? Like, he says he's your follower, but how can you do that? Does he really follow you? Like, how can you accept that? What can you do about that? How can you just stand there and let that happen? So he's an accuser of us. And we're going to talk about 
how those things are dealt with. But a few things about Satan in general, kind of a little background on him, and then we're going to talk specifically about the primary way, not the only way, but the primary way these days that Satan does battle against believers and executes spiritual warfare against us. A few things about him. We believe here at Hiawatha, um, as the elders, I don't think this is in the member statement of faith, but that Satan is a real being. So Satan is not just this word we use as an idea for this kind of cosmic idea of evil, and we want to personify it somehow to make it easier to talk about. We believe Satan is an actual being that exists, not a person, so not flesh and blood, uh, but he is a being. He's a created being, so he is not like God. God has existed for all eternity past. God has always existed. That is not true of Satan. He was created. He was created by God. He was created as an angel, so he was created uh, good, kind of, in the sense that he was an angel. Um, Scripture talks of him not just as an angel, but as one of the top angels. Scripture is very vague in terms of like hierarchy and ordering of angels and demons. It gives us just enough to know that there's some of that. There are some angels or demons that are more powerful than others. But people who would go and make all these lists of like, well, you've got seraphim, and that's a certain type of angel, and they're here. And then you've got cherubim, and they're here. And then you've got Michael, who's called the archangel or one of the chief princes. Like, you can get too far into that because Scripture is pretty vague. It gives us enough to know that there's something there, that there are varying levels of power. But in general, we don't really know a lot about the specifics. We know Satan was either the top angel or one of the top angels. So not just an angel, but one of the best. Um, he is an angel of God no longer. What happened was uh, Isaiah and Revelation tell us that he became filled with pride. He looked at God on his throne and he said, I can do better than that. I want that throne and I can do a better job than you can do. And he convinced about a third of the angels that God had created to follow him. And he's like, hey, I mean, look at that guy. We can do better than this. We can take over here. We can make heaven our heaven. We can make things the way we want them to be. We can be in charge. And Revelation talks about how there was war in heaven, that Michael, uh, one of the chief princes, and the angels that weren't following Satan, so about two-thirds of them, fought against Satan and his angels, and Satan and his angels were not strong enough. They were kicked out of heaven. So uh, Satan and his demons are fallen angels. They were created by God. They were angels. Uh, they rebelled. They became filled with pride. And then they went to war, which going to war with God is always a bad idea because you're not going to win. And they didn't win. They got kicked out of heaven. So uh, that is kind of a little background on Satan. Uh, Revelation talks about how when he was kicked out of heaven, he became very angry understandably so, that he had this plan, he had this design for what he was going to do, didn't work out the way he thought any, so he says to himself, all right, well, I don't get the throne, but what can I do to mess with God's plan? Well, I can go around hurting his people and destroying his people. I can go around trying to corrupt his plans, so that's what I'm going to do. So scripture describes Satan in a couple different ways, a couple uh, main things. In 1 Peter 5, it calls him our enemy, and says he crawls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So he's like a lion that's looking for something to destroy. So Satan is not kind of this neutral figure. It's not like, oh, poor Satan, he had this idea, and then God kind of crushed his idea and kicked him out of heaven, and now he's really sad about it. It's like, no, his intention has always been to go against God. 
And he's still doing that. He's just now doing it by attacking his people instead of attacking God directly. Because he tried attacking God directly through Jesus Christ, and we'll look at that a little bit, and he failed. So now he's attacking his people. So he's like this lion that's going around looking for someone to just pounce on and tear apart. So that's what he's doing. Also, 2 Corinthians 11 says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So part of the problem with that picture of Jesus and Satan arm wrestling is we've got the stereotypical picture of Satan that he's got red skin or whatever it is that covers his body. He's got horns. He's got like eyes with fire. He's got in that picture, his skin almost looks like it has fire or lava flowing in it. That is not what Satan actually looks like. Scripture talks about how he masquerades as an angel of light, that he appears as something attractive. That when Satan lies to you, when he tells you things, it sounds close to the truth. It sounds like something you hear it and you're like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I think that's what God said, pretty much, maybe. So Satan does not come to you with this deep, dark voice and eyes of fire and tell you, you know, go kill someone or go do this and that. That's not how he starts out. He's smarter than that. He comes subtly. He comes like an angel of light. That's how he disguises himself. Revelation 12 also says he leads the whole world astray. So he's attacking and particularly wanting to hurt Christians. But he's also influencing the rest of the world. The New Testament actually calls him the God of this age, small g. So he's powerful. He's got power and influence over the world. He's not stronger than God. You know, he's got his level of power. God's is way above him. Jesus Christ's power is way above him. But he has power. He is a strong enemy. And also, he is a liar. And that's the primary thing that Scripture says about Satan. The primary way it describes him is a liar. So, uh, he's like a lion that prowls around just waiting to tear people apart. He can masquerade as an angel of light. He can appear as something good. He can say words that appear to be good, that appear to be like something God would say. And in fact, when he's tempting Jesus in the wilderness, he actually uses Scripture. All his arguments, he quotes Scripture directly to Jesus and says, God says this, so you should do it. And Jesus comes back with other Scripture that shows that Satan is taking things out of context or not taking verses out of context, but he has an idea and an end that's contrary to what God is doing. But Satan doesn't come just making up his own little thing. He comes and pulls out scripture he's familiar with and says, God says this, Jesus, you should do this. Or God says he'll do this for you. Why don't you test that and trust that he's going to do that for you? And Jesus brilliantly responds with other scripture. Um, but yeah, Satan then is also and primarily a liar. So we're going to look a little bit more specifically at that, what does that mean exactly? And then look at some of the specific types of lies that Satan tells us. Um, so, next slide. Yep, John eight forty four, talking about Satan as a liar. Jesus here is talking to some Jewish authorities who are saying, no, you know, we're following Abraham, we're following God. And Jesus says to them, no, by the way you live, it's actually clear that you're following Satan, that he's the one you're following. So Jesus speaking here, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. That phrase speaks out of his own character. Some translations there say when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. 
Any of you who've ever tried to learn a foreign language or have learned a foreign language, especially at the beginning, it's very difficult because it's very different than your native language. It's much easier to speak your native language than to speak a language you're learning when you don't know the whole thing. Satan, the easiest thing for him to speak is lies. That is his native tongue. When he speaks lies, that's the most comfortable form of speech he can do. So you think of learning a foreign language and speaking your native language and how much more comfortable it is, how much easier things come, how much easier it is to describe what you're thinking or feeling or seeing. For Satan, that ease and that comfort comes in lying. That's his native language. That's what's easy for him. That's where he's a slick talker. So, with that said, uh, there are a lot of different types of lies that Satan will bring to people that cover a lot of different topics. That could be a whole sermon series in itself, not just a whole sermon, lies that Satan tells us. But we're going to look briefly at Genesis 3, where Satan comes and lies to Eve in the garden, and it's the incident where he convinces her to eat the fruit, and she does, and Adam does, and then they get kicked out of paradise. But the lies that Satan tells here, uh, the types of lies are pretty similar to most of the types of lies that he still tells. The specifics are different depending on people's situations, but the generalities are pretty similar. So chapter 3. Satan says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So Satan comes and asks this question, did God actually say you can't eat any of the fruit from the trees in the garden? The answer to that, the first part Eve gives is pretty good. No, that's not what God said. He says we can eat from the trees in the garden. The second part of the answer, though, she actually doesn't get it quite right. She says, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God never said anything about not being able to touch the tree. He said you can't eat the fruit. He didn't say you can't look at the tree, you can't be by the tree, you can't touch the tree. He didn't say any of that. He just said you can't eat the fruit. So this is something that uh, Adam and Eve added to this, which in some ways kind of makes sense. It's like, okay, if God doesn't want you to eat the fruit, well, if you say you can't touch it, then you're less likely to like accidentally eat it, however that happens, that maybe you have it in your hand and you fall and like it, the peach breaks your fall in your mouth. Oh no, I ate it accidentally. But they've added to it. But that's not what God said. It's not what God said. But look at what Satan does here. He takes something God said that was for their good. They're in this garden with a lot of different trees. We don't know how many, but Genesis 2 talks about how it's not just like there's this one tree they can't eat and like one or two other trees. There's a lot of trees. And God says, you can eat any of this. All of this is for you. This one tree, that's the only thing you can't have. And Satan turns it a little bit, very subtly, to make God seem like he's not really working for their benefit, to make God seem like he's a killjoy, like he's not generous, like he's stingy, like he doesn't want them to have anything. That as they look around in this garden, trees that look good, they look beautiful, fruit on them that's good to eat. He says, did God really say you can't have any of this? Any of this good stuff he made? He won't share this with you? See what he does? See how subtle that is? And he still does that for us. He'll come to us. Did God really say that you can't have any of this? Did God really say 
that you can't do any of this? No. No, that's not what God said. God gives us a ton of freedom. He gives us a lot. There are specific things he says no to for our good because it's harmful to have them. But Satan will twist that and he'll take that one thing that God says no to and try and expand it out into a whole category and say, man, God said you can't have any of this stuff? Well, that's really mean of him. He must not really care about you then. So that's one of the big ways that Satan lies to us. The other one, so Eve responds, and then Satan comes, and now instead of saying something that's based on what God said and twisting it a little bit, he just comes and says the opposite. And he sees from Eve's response that they've already added to it. They've already made this something that feels more restrictive to God. It's like, yeah, we can't eat this fruit, we can't even touch it. Well, God never said you couldn't touch it. God didn't say you couldn't be by the tree. God just said you can't eat the fruit. But they've already added a restriction to it, so it already feels like God is doing more than he actually said. So Satan pushes that with them a little bit, and now he's just going to contradict God, because Eve says, well, we can't eat it, we can't touch it, if we do, we'll die. Satan says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now what he says is partly true, because they do end up eating from the fruit of the tree. And when they do, they do know good and evil. Their eyes are opened. And they do not physically die in that instant. But there is a form of death that comes. The relationship that they have with God is broken and death comes there. And then later, physically, their bodies will also die. So what God says is true, it just doesn't happen exactly the way they thought it would. But Satan here is lying. He's saying, no, 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 God said you're going to die, that's not going to happen. God said this, this is bad for you, that's not true. This is going to make you like God. You're going to know things that God knows. You're going to be able to see things that he sees. You're going to be able to reason and make decisions that he can make. Basically saying, you know, God's telling you not to eat this because he kind of wants to control you. He wants to just kind of be the boss of you. He knows that if you do this, you're going to have more freedom. You're going to be able to do some of the things yourself that before you needed God to do for you. God's not really looking out for your good. This is another huge lie that Satan uses. He'll lie to us about sin. He'll say, no, no, no. Sin's going to make you more like God. God just wants to restrict you. He doesn't want you to know these secret things that you don't know. He doesn't want you to have this knowledge or this ability that he has. But that's not true. Sin never makes us more like God. Sin always makes us less like God, not more like God. Scripture says quite clearly that there is no sin in God, that God does not sin. And so how then is it possible if we sin and take on more and more sin that we look more like God who has no sin in him? It's not possible. The more sin we have, the less we look like God. Not more like him. So these, this is kind of Satan's MO in terms of how he deals with people, how he brings lies to people. And obviously the specifics of this are going to be very different. Highly unlikely Satan's ever going to try and tempt you with the lie to eat a piece of fruit because it's highly unlikely that there's fruit out there that God said you can't eat. Um, yeah, but this idea of God giving things with restriction for our good and Satan saying, no, 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 no. Did God really say you can't have any of this? No, he said we could have most of this. There's just this one restriction. Well, that's not true. God just doesn't want you to be like him. 
But sin doesn't make us like God, it makes us less like God, not more like God. So that is how Satan works generally with lies. Again, a great example of that, um, near the beginning of the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, if you read through that passage, you can see uh, Satan does the same thing he's doing in Genesis. He just does it using actual words of Scripture. Because he knows going to Jesus, who is God, he can't make up things that God didn't say. It's like, well, that's not going to work, because Jesus is going to see through that. He's like, actually, we didn't say that in the Bible. You're wrong. So he uses words that God said, but he twists it in these same ways. This idea of, man, Jesus, you're doing, did God really say that you can't do these things? No, God said I can do all this stuff, and this is kind of my mission and what I'm doing. It's just this one piece, but the reason I'm not doing that is because of this other scripture that you're not taking into account. Well, you know, Jesus, God's just trying to hold you back. I can give you a better way to get to the point you're going. I can give you a better way to be more like God faster. It's like, no, 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 no. The plan you have is not the plan God has. And you're telling me that I'm going to be more like God through this plan, but you're wrong. It's actually going to make me less like him. So the types of lies are the same. The specifics are different. And it's the same for us. So be aware of that. Satan, as a believer, Satan is our enemy. And he's lying to us. And this usually doesn't come in the form it does in Genesis. You're probably not going to wake up one morning and there will be a snake in your room that's talking to you and telling you things. Um, but it's more subtle. It can come in a lot of different ways. It can come through culture. It can come through the sin within us that still abides, the desires we still have that war within ourselves. We follow Christ and we have the desire to follow him. But we still have our flesh and it still has the desires of sin to follow that. And Satan can stir that up and use that against us, can come in a lot of different ways. But these are the type, the ways that Satan lies to us. So, uh, a little background on who Satan is, where he came from, a little bit about the main way he works. And this is the main component of what spiritual warfare is. Certainly, some of the more supernatural things we think of, like demon possession and that type of stuff, that exists, that happens. But, if that's the only thing you're ever looking for, it's like, okay, I'm a Christian, Satan's my enemy, he's going to have spiritual warfare coming against me. Well, I don't see anyone who's demon-possessed who's trying to like hurt me or say lies, so it must be good right now. You're going to miss the main thing that Satan does, which is lie to us like this, in subtle ways. So now, back to the picture. Um, yeah, artistically, good picture. In every other way, really bad. So... Some of the things that are bad about the picture, the main thing is, this picture gives the impression that you've got Jesus and Satan, they're kind of on equal footing, like this is what the gospel is, like Satan and Jesus metaphorically sat down on this slab of stone and arm wrestled, and Jesus just happened to win, so, you know, that's good. And in the picture, it's really awkward, because it kind of looks like Jesus is losing, if you see it closer up, it looks like his arm isn't at 90 degrees, it's like, yeah, that's not right, not right at all. So the bad things that this picture does is, one, it gives the impression Jesus and Satan are equal and opposite, and that is not true. And that's an impression a lot of believers have, and partly it's understandable, because we talk about Jesus, and we talk about salvation and all the good he's done, and we talk about evil, and Satan being kind of the primary biblical example of that, of course you're going to talk about him, and you're going to end up talking about Jesus and Satan in contrast to each other, and they are contrasted, they're on opposite sides in every way, but they're not equal. 
Jesus is way up here and Satan's way down here. Like their power level is nowhere near being equal. So that's the main thing that's bad about this picture. It also would be bad and wouldn't be accurate if you replace Jesus with a person. So like if you put yourself in there and you're the one arm wrestling against Jesus, or Jesus, against Satan, if you're the one arm wrestling, that also wouldn't be accurate uh, for two reasons. One, because people and Satan are not equal either. Scripture talks about in Hebrews, it's talking about Jesus becoming human. And it says that while he was human, he was, it says, he became human and in doing so was made lower than the angels for a while until he died and was raised from the dead. So in terms of like in general power level of beings God has created, you've got people, you've got angels and demons, those spiritual forces, and they're stronger than people. So you and Satan arm wrestling, just in your own power, this is like without the Holy Spirit, without Christ in you, you sitting down at a table to arm wrestle Satan, you're just going to get annihilated because you're not as strong as he is. You just aren't. Satan is stronger than a person. Um, so that's one bad thing is if you were to put people in here is that without Christ, people are lesser than an angel or a demon. A funny story about this. Can I read real quick? I don't have this up on the screen. This is from Acts 19. So Jesus has died. He's raised from the dead. The apostles are going uh, throughout the world preaching the gospel and they're doing these supernatural things. They're driving out demons, they're healing diseases. And other people are seeing this and saying, wow, this is really cool. And um, so Acts 19, 13 through 16, some Jews went around driving out evil, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. So they had probably witnessed Paul or Peter or the other apostles in Jesus' name driving out demons. They're like, wow, you know, I've kind of been doing this exorcism thing on the side, and this, uh, this really seems to work well. I've got to get on board with this. So they're doing that, uh, and there was some success going on with that. So verse 14, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. So you've got these seven sons who go together and are driving out these demons using Jesus' name. So they're not followers of Christ. They don't have the spirit within them. They're not trusting in Jesus. They're just using his name. And so powerful is the name of Jesus that this is working. It's driving out demons. <laughs> Until verse 15, one day, the, so they say this, they come upon this uh, demon that's possessing this person, saying, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. But one day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I've heard of, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So you've got seven guys who are going up against one guy who's demon-possessed. They say this thing about Jesus and Paul, and the demon's like, oh, I know Jesus. Like, I've actually interacted with him. I know who he is. Yeah, I've heard of Paul. He's causing us some trouble. But you, you don't have Christ. <laughs> who are you? I don't know you. And then this one guy overpowers these seven guys and basically beats them up to the point where he like strips off their clothes, they're bleeding. Can you imagine being someone outside the house? Like, oh, it's the seven sons. They're going to go do their exorcism thing. They walk in the house. You hear some noise. Like, oh, cool, they're doing it. Then all of a sudden, these seven guys without any clothes, all bloody, run out of the house and run away. It's like, excuse me, I think you forgot your cloak. You might want that. So 
that's a picture of um, people apart from Christ trying to take on Satan. Bad idea, because he's stronger. The other way it's bad to put a person in place of Christ is you can go the other way. So you can then think of yourself as being in the place of Jesus as the one who's like directly confronting and fighting Satan, and that's not what happens, really. Because Jesus already did that on the cross. He already defeated Satan at the cross. And with uh, it's also not equal for those of us who are believing and trusting in Christ, who have the Spirit within us. Satan and us are not equals. We're above Satan. But it's not because of us, because in of ourselves we're still weaker. But when we have Christ within us, who already crushed Satan on the cross, then of course we're going to be able to defeat him. Because his power can't stand against God's power. A more accurate picture would be to put Michael, the archangel, arm wrestling Satan. They would be equal and opposite. So Satan's equal opposite is Michael, who's called the chief prince or the archangel, so probably the highest angel. But this is a bad picture because Jesus and Satan are not equal opposites. Jesus is far, far beyond Satan in power and ability. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a great quote. He has many great quotes, but one that relates to this. He talks about Satan and says, Satan is like a dog on a leash. He can go only as far as God lets out the chain. And that picture, like, they're not equal opposites. God has Satan on a leash. And Satan can do a lot of harm. He is powerful. But he can only go as far as God lets out the leash. You see that in the book of Job, where God comes to Satan. He's like, uh, look at Job. Or God says, look at Job. Isn't he a great guy? Satan's like, well, of course. You've given him everything. Nothing bad ever happens to him. God's like, all right, well, you can harm his stuff. But you can't touch him. So Satan does that. God lets out the chain a little bit, but says, only this far, no farther. Then Satan comes back. God's like, hey, did you see how what you did didn't work? And Satan's like, well, of course not. It was only his stuff. I mean, if you let me attack him personally, then he'll deny you. And God's like, all right, you can hurt him, but you can't kill him. A little farther, but still only this far, no farther. Satan's like, all right. And he goes and does it, doesn't kill him, because God hasn't given him permission. And once again, it doesn't work out. And then a lot of other stuff happens in the book of Job. But you see that Satan's powerful, but he's restricted by God. So we don't have to fear Satan. Because one, as believers, we don't have to fear Satan. Because Christ and the Holy Spirit are in us. And Scripture says, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. What we have within us is greater than Satan. But also we don't have to fear him, because God's got it under control. He's got Satan on a leash. And he'll let the leash out different lengths at different times, and we don't under, always understand why God allows Satan to do certain things, but he has a plan and there are reasons. But know that God's in control, and he can always pull the leash back, and Satan can't go farther than God allows him. Um, yeah, there's a lot of restriction there. So Satan and Jesus are not equal opposites. Be encouraged by that, that you don't have to worry about this power struggle, which way is it going to go. Jesus has already declared the major victory. Now it's more just the cleanup operation. And Satan is in that desperate place where he knows he's on the losing side. He knows he's running out of time. He knows he can't win. So it's like, I'm going to try and do as much damage as I can before I'm done. Because I'm done. I can't win. My time's running out. But in the midst of that, he's not even able to do as much damage as he wants because God's like, no, you want to do that, but I won't allow it. Yes, you can do that. No, you want to do that, but I'm not going to allow that either. So that's a little bit about our enemy. Um, 
a word of warning to a little bit with that. In Revelation, uh, at the beginning of Revelation, Jesus is talking to these seven churches and giving them both encouragement and exhortation, like, hey, you've done this really well, way to go. Hey, you've done this really poorly, let's work on that. And one of the churches, one of the things they've done well is, he says, you're in the city where Satan's throne is, whatever that means exactly. So there's a lot of power and a lot of obvious manifestation of Satan's power in that city. We don't know exactly what that looks like. And he says, you have not been led astray to learn the so-called deep things of Satan. There's a lot that Scripture tells us about the devil and about angels, but there's more that it doesn't tell us. And it's easy to be curious about such things. But be reminded, everything we need to know about Satan as believers to deal with him is in Scripture. And anything else we might want to know that's not there, there are reasons God didn't put that stuff in there. And it can be dangerous. It's dangerous to make Satan the focus of spiritual warfare. Because he isn't. Jesus is the focus. And that's one way Satan can lie to us. He's like, well, you know, you heard that sermon but what about all the secret things I can do that Scripture doesn't say? You better find out what those are so you can really combat me. It's like, no, whatever the secret thing might be, if such a thing even exists, since you're a liar, so I'm not even going to believe that you're being honest with me to begin with. John 8 says there is no truth in you. You don't speak the truth. But even if there is something that I don't know about you, I don't need to know it. Because God knows it, and God's in control of the situation, and that's where my power comes from. So make Jesus the focus of spiritual warfare, not Satan. So how do we wage this war? How do we wage spiritual warfare? Verse 10 is the key to spiritual warfare. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So... Um, from the Gospel of John, a few verses, this is Jesus is on the cross right before he dies. So after this, after he's hung there for six hours, he's right at the end of his life. Uh, he's been on the cross, suffered for the sins of the world. He knows that he's done all that he needs to do, and now it's time for him to die. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished is the greatest act of spiritual warfare that ever happened. The greatest victory of any battle, of any war in all of history is this moment. And it's the antithesis of what you'd think, because it's the hero dying. Who reads a story of a battle, and the main hero dies, and you're like, wow, that's so awesome, they won. It's like, what? He died. That's really bad. Um, but here, that is the victory. The greatest act of spiritual warfare, the greatest victory that's ever been achieved in battle, is part one of it is this moment right here, where Jesus finishes what he came to do. Everything's finished. His mission is finished. Sin and death's reign is finished. Satan's dominion is finished. It's all finished right here. And then he dies. The second half is him raising from the dead a few days later. Jesus' death and resurrection is the greatest victory that's ever been obtained in any war, in any battle ever in all of history. This is the key moment of spiritual warfare. What we're doing now is kind of just the cleanup operation. It's like the leftovers a little bit. Everything's been decided, 
the war is done, there are still some skirmishes that are happening for a while longer until that final definitive end to all conflict. But the war is done. Jesus beats Satan. And Satan will try and convince you that's not true. He'll try and convince you, I'm really dangerous. I'm Jesus' equal. Nope, that's false. I'm really dangerous. There's this war going on. Jesus and I are arm wrestling. This could go either way. No. Jesus finished it on the cross. It's all done. There's nothing left to do. Verse 10 there, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. The greatest show of God's might that he's ever done is dying on the cross and raising from the dead. Jesus' death and resurrection is the greatest example of Jesus' power, of God's power and might that has ever been shown and will ever been shown. And we get to enjoy the benefits of that afterwards. There's a story in the Gospels, a parable Jesus is telling, uh, talking about Satan and how he kind of has authority over the earth to some degree before Jesus dies and is resurrected. And he compares Satan to a strong man and he says, you know, if you're in your house and you're a strong person and someone comes in to steal your stuff, you stop him. Like if I'm sitting at home later tonight and my front door is open and I'm watching a movie or something and some kid comes in who's like eight years old and like this tall and starts trying to take the projector that I'm using to watch a movie, you know, I'm going to say, uh, what are you doing? Well, I'm stealing this. I want it. <laughs> it's like, ah, uh, no, you're not. <laughs> no, no, that's not going to happen. Now, if someone comes in who's bigger and stronger than me and who's armed and says, I'm taking your projector, it's going to be like, yep, go ahead. Anything else you want, I'll box it up for you. And that's kind of the example he uses. So Satan, he's like the strong man in the house. And the stuff he has in the house, Jesus said, are people. And Jesus dies, raises from the dead, and then he kicks down the door of Satan's house, walks in, and starts taking people out of Satan's house. And Satan can't do a thing about it. He just stands there and watches it happen because he isn't strong enough. Jesus is that guy who walks into the house and says, I'm taking this. And it's like, all right, you're stronger than me. I can't do anything about it. And he just starts taking people out of Satan's house. That's the power of spiritual warfare. That's the power of the cross and the empty tomb. That is the main piece of what spiritual warfare is and how it happens. So the next slide, these other three things. Putting on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil taking up the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So not just to stand like you're fighting this war and you're taking wounds, you're in battle, and then at the end of the battle, you're standing, but you're kind of like you're leaning on your sword, you're wounded really badly, you're kind of up. It's like, no, you're standing firm. You're still the victor. Uh, it's not like, oh, you just barely made it. It's not just barely surviving, but standing firm taking up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, praying at all times. These things are all in the context of being strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. If you don't have that as the starting point at the top, if you don't have the cross and the empty tomb as the starting point, if that's not the strength of God's might that you're relying on, your spiritual warfare excursions are going to go quite poorly. Because you're going to be relying on your own power, not God's, and your power isn't enough. And God's power is more than sufficient. We don't have to try and do on our own what God's already done. That's foolish. That's like me this winter, sorry to bring up snow, but me this winter going out and shoveling and then finishing and then one of my other roommates saying, oh, I think I'll go shovel. It's like, 
what are you talking about? Like, why would you waste the time on that? It's done. There's nothing to do. You're going to go push a shovel around on a sidewalk that doesn't need it. Spend, you know, 20, 40 minutes, whatever it is. You could have spent that time doing something worthwhile instead. In the same way, when we try and do spiritual warfare on our own, God's like, what are you doing? I've already done this. You're wasting time. You're wasting energy. You're not going to be effective. And you don't need to. I've already done this. Trust in me. Trust in what I've done. Believe the gospel. That's the spiritual warfare you need to do. Be aware of the lies that Satan's trying to bring to you and combat those with my word. Combat those with the gospel. So, having said all that, let's look briefly at the armor of God. Uh, So we're not going to go and spend a lot of time on each of those things. I'm going to bring out a few things about them. But basically, all these pieces of the armor of God are just different ways we put the gospel on and use that as a weapon. Like, that's the short answer. There are some cool things in here that we're going to briefly touch on, but we're not going to spend like, all right, here's 10 minutes on the belt of truth, and here's 10 minutes on the breastplate of righteousness. Truth, righteousness, faith, salvation, these are all things that come from the gospel. These are all pieces of what Christ did for us on the cross. But um, a few things that are worth noting here briefly. The belt of truth, so this picture is a moderately accurate representation of what a Roman soldier would have looked like. So you can kind of see he's got the gold belt with uh, the stuff hanging down in front. And if you can see, the breastplate actually goes inside the belt. And then the sword, if he's right-handed, would be on his left side behind the shield and would be hanging from it. So the belt is kind of this key component of the armor that you wore as a soldier because a lot of other pieces fit into it and were kind of held in place by it. In the same way, truth is a key component of these other things, of righteousness, of salvation, of faith, and of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is kind of this piece that holds together other things, especially when you think of spiritual warfare in terms of lies. When lies come, how do you combat those? You combat them with the truth. So having the truth there. Uh, Second, the shield of faith. Going to look at briefly. So... Uh, The shield in that picture is metal, which is inaccurate. Roman shields were wood. That shield is a little smaller, actually, than Roman shields were. They were big enough that when you used it, you could protect your whole body behind it, basically. And then the front, the part that's red and yellow there, would have been leather. And so in battle, if you were going into battle where they'd be throwing or uh, shooting arrows at you that were on fire, you would soak the leather in water to make it flame retardant. It wouldn't be fireproof, of course, but to give you that extra bonus. And also what you'd do is, you didn't go in one soldier alone, you went in as a group of soldiers. And so what you could do then is, you'd set up your line and the people in front would kneel down and put their shields, like shield to shield, with no space behind them to form this wall. The people in the second rank would come behind and put their shields kind of like this to form a barrier here. And so you could basically make this wall that was impenetrable to arrows, could for a while anyway stop flaming arrows, And depending on the strength of the shield and who you were fighting and some other things, could even repel spears. In a similar way, uh, spiritual warfare is not something we just do alone as individuals. It's something we do as a community. And as a community, we're going to be a lot stronger than individuals. You take one Roman soldier out on a battlefield, it doesn't matter how good they are at fighting, you can get a large enough amount of enemies that can overwhelm them. You get a whole troop of soldiers with this impenetrable wall of shields, they're going to do a lot better in battle. In the same way, 
as we do spiritual warfare, obviously there are moments as lies come where we're by ourselves and we deal with that, just us and Christ, and that is sufficient, but also community is really important because we can speak truth to each other when lies come in. You know, when I'm feeling like, man, I wish God just wouldn't, would uh, stop saying I couldn't do this. You know, I might say that, and Spencer might say, well, dude, that's not at all what God says. Let's look at that. Let's look at the truth of what God says. You're just believing a lie. That isn't true. So having each other to ward off some of that is very helpful. Then the second piece, the shoes. So the shoes here are uh, you put on readiness that's given by the gospel of peace. The idea of the gospel of peace being associated with shoes and kind of traveling is not something that's only here in Ephesians. In Isaiah 52, Isaiah writes, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who publish peace, who bring good news of happiness, who publish salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. It's interesting, isn't it, to see the idea of a gospel of peace in the middle of a passage of warfare. But that's what the gospel is. Jesus fought the most difficult battle that's ever been fought on the cross. The most bloody, the most painful battle. He won, and in doing so, in the midst of this war, he brought peace through the gospel. And that's the reason why, ultimately, people aren't our enemy even those people who aren't believers and are against us, because God's desire for them is to be saved, is to change sides. His desire is that in the middle of this war that they're waging, that they would find the peace of the gospel and be delivered from the war that they're fighting. The shoes, the readiness, the gospel of peace, one of the key components of our armor. The gospel is the core of our armor. Isaiah 61 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. This armor that we put on are just different pieces of the clothing of salvation that God's put on us. The clothing of salvation is not just something that purifies us from sin and makes us righteous before God. It's not just something that destroys the barrier of sin and death that exists between us and God. It is those things for sure. It is primarily those things. But the clothing of salvation we put on is also protection. Protection from our enemy, protection from lies, protection from sin. It's armor that we wear. So this is the armor of God. Also, this passage talks about two weapons of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer. So a couple things people usually note when going through this passage is, one, everything that he's talking about is defensive except the sword and prayer. All the other pieces are defensive, the armor. Roman soldiers usually also carried a spear and some other things, but Paul doesn't mention that. He focuses on, here are these pieces that you wear that are defensive. They work because of what God's already done. There's power in them because of God, because of what Jesus did on the cross. Then he talks about, we do, though, have two weapons that we wield. So as we wage spiritual warfare, what weapons do we wield? Unfortunately, not a lightsaber. I'm a little disappointed about that, but life goes on. 
But we actually have something better, believe it or not. So the primary weapon we wield is the Word of God. Another great example, you see this when Jesus and Satan are kind of sparring and doing their spiritual warfare thing when Satan's tempting him. What weapon does Jesus use? He uses the Word of God. He doesn't respond just by using his own God power, whatever that would mean in that situation. He comes, everything Satan says, he comes back with Scripture. Satan says, doesn't Scripture say this? Jesus is like, yes, but that isn't right because of these Scriptures. Doesn't Scripture say this? No, Scripture doesn't say that. It actually says this. That's the weapon that Jesus wields in that time. You see it in the New Testament as people are going around, um, driving out demons, uh, teaching, and dealing with like false teaching and other lies that are coming. What's one of the primary weapons they use? It's Scripture. It's God's Word. And what's the other one? It's prayer. It's asking God to empower them, to give them courage, to help them to do this well, to help them to trust in Him and not their own power, to show them what needs to be done in certain situations, to help them see through the lies that are coming. These are the weapons of God. So, the Word of God from Hebrews 4. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is an awesome weapon, God's Word. It's a weapon that cannot just deal with the physical, but can deal with the supernatural. It can penetrate to people's hearts and thoughts. It can deal with supernatural, spiritual forces. It says here it discerns thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's Word is just a great weapon. It's a, the, one of the best weapons we have for combating lies that come, for combating things, not just lies that come from outside, but things we believe within ourselves that are false, because God's Word can penetrate to that. It can show those intentions, it can show those thoughts, it can show, oh, here's something I'm believing about myself, but this isn't true according to God's word. Here's something I'm afraid of, here's something I'm angry about, here's something I'm confused about. But God's word has answers to this, he has things that help this situation. God's word is a powerful, powerful weapon. And that's one of the reasons things like scripture memorization are great things, you know, you don't, if you're a soldier, you're not going to go out to battle without your sword. It's a bad idea, at least not if you want to win or survive. How many of us are there as believers that every day go about our lives and our spiritual warfare and we don't have one of our primary weapons with us? We don't have God's Word. I'm not saying you have to spend like three hours a day and have the whole Bible memorized by the end of the year. I'm not saying that at all. But even one verse... One verse about how God cares for you. One verse about how God is truth and Satan is lie. Satan tells lies. Just a couple of those things can be huge tools to use in those moments when spiritual attack is coming. So the other weapon, prayer. Romans 8, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what, we, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That passage is a little confusing, as passages tend to be that talk about the Holy Spirit because there's a lot about the Spirit that's a little confusing. But prayer is such a powerful weapon in terms of spiritual warfare. It's powerful when we're experiencing spiritual warfare directly. It's powerful in helping other people it's a weapon that's not bound by time, that's not bound by distance. Like, I can pray for people that are halfway around the world. 
I can even pray for people according to this passage without even really knowing what they need prayer for. Because God's Spirit itself will intercede and help me pray. So I might have a friend, you know, who's uh, on a mission trip in a different country. And there's going to be stuff going on for them every day, and I don't know what it is because I'm not in contact with them every day. But I can still pray for them. In general, there's a lot of good things that can be prayed. But God's Spirit can even bring specifics to mind because he knows exactly what's happening over there. He knows exactly what those people need. My brother and his wife live in Michigan, and I talk to him on a regular basis, but I don't talk to him all the time. I don't see him or talk to him every day. So there are times when I'm praying for my brother and his wife, and I don't know the specifics of what's going on in their life that day, but I can still pray for them, and God will still bring stuff to mind, like, oh, you should pray this for me. Okay. So that's one way the Spirit directly enters into this idea of spiritual warfare is the Spirit helps us as we pray. It can direct and guide our prayers when we don't even know what to pray. Because the Spirit knows our hearts, it knows other people's hearts, it knows everything that's happening in the spiritual, supernatural realm, and so it can deal with all that stuff that we're not aware of and that we can't see. So how do we wage the war, spiritual warfare? By being strong in God and the power of His might. By taking, by being dressed uh, in the armor of righteousness, by not trying to go it alone, by taking advantage of the fact that we have community, and also by wielding, we get to dual wield, sword and prayer. So by dual wielding, God's word and prayer as our weapon. So in conclusion, for spiritual warfare, one, are you aware that you're in a war? Are you aware that there is war going on right now, that you have an enemy that wants to destroy you, that wants to tear you apart. But, as a believer, that you have God's power helping you and protecting you. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're still involved in this war. It's kind of like living in a place that's a war zone. You might not directly be on either side, but you're still going to be involved in the conflict. The difference is, Scripture says, there's no such thing as neutrality. You're either with God or you're against Him. So you might think you're kind of neutral. It's like, well, yeah, I might get caught in the crossfire a little bit, but I'll just kind of stay out of the way. And, you know, Christians and Satan and all this stuff, they can kind of do their thing and I'll just step back and not be involved. No. What's Revelation say? Satan deceives the whole world. He leads the whole world astray. You're being affected by him, whether you know it or not. And the answer is the gospel. The answer is Jesus Christ. There is no other long-term answer because you're not strong enough on your own. None of us are strong enough on our own to fight this battle. And the battle, the big battles of the war have already been fought, so it's pointless to try and fight it on your own when Jesus has already done it. Just accept what Jesus has already done. You don't have to try and redo what he's done because you're not going to be able to do it as well as he did. Two, are you aware of the enemy and his schemes? Are you aware that you have an enemy? That Satan is your adversary, that he is a liar, that he is an accuser. Are you aware of his schemes? What is his primary scheme? To bring lies. To try and sow in our hearts distrust in God. To try and give us a picture of God that isn't true. God doesn't really care about you. He's just trying to restrict you. He's so mean. God said that this is bad for you, but it isn't. He just doesn't want you to be like are you aware that these lies are coming in your life? Not in the specifics of Genesis 3, 
But in the generalities, for sure, every day we're hearing some of these lies. And every day there's that temptation for us to believe those lies. And that's what we need the gospel for. Point three, are you waging war with the gospel? Is the gospel where you start and where you end? Is it what you rest in? Are you wielding through the gospel the weapons of God's word and prayer? Are those the things you're using to combat the spiritual warfare that's happening? And in speaking briefly about some of those more supernatural things, things like demon possession and stuff, if you're ever in a situation where you're confronted with something like that, the answer is still the gospel, God's word, and prayer. That's the less common examples of spiritual warfare or manifestations of spiritual warfare. But those things exist. I personally have never, to the best of my knowledge, had an encounter with someone who's demon-possessed. I know some people who have, and they would say that point three, this is how you wage war there. You start with the gospel and God's power, because you're not strong enough on your own, and then God's word you use to combat it, and prayer. Jesus says in the gospels, after he drives out a demon that the apostles weren't able to drive out, they say, why couldn't we drive it out? He says, this kind only comes out by prayer and by God's word. So that's always the answer to spiritual warfare, whatever the specifics are. It's always the answer. And if you've got God's spirit in you, you don't have to be afraid of encountering those situations. And in fact, it's good to not feel that overconfidence of like, ah, I've got this, I'll take care of this myself. Because then in that moment, you'll be more likely to rely on God and his power, which is what you want to do. So that is a brief overview of spiritual warfare. There's a lot more that could be said, but that covers the main points and covers the pieces of spiritual warfare that we encounter every day and are likely to encounter more often. So with all that said, let's pray, and then the band will come up, and uh, well, we'll do communion prep and then move into a time of communion and worship. Jesus Thank you for the cross. Thank you that the ultimate act of spiritual warfare happened almost 2,000 years ago, and you were the one who won that victory for us, that we do not have to do that on our own, that we are not responsible to do what you've already done. I pray, God, that you would help us to become more and more aware of the lies that Satan feeds us, the lies that were fed uh, through our own flesh and through culture, God that more and more we would hate sin and love you, that more and more we would trust. As we look at what you did for us on the cross and everything you were willing to give, if you were willing to do that, why would you spare us other things? God? Amen. So, first Sunday of the month at Hiawatha, uh, we make communion a little more of a focus. It's always available every Sunday. And we do that because in Scripture, Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed, he was eating with his disciples and did a first communion, basically, the bread and the wine, and said, as long as you're believers, as long as this keeps going until I return again, do this in remembrance of me. So we do this to remember what Christ did, his death and resurrection. The bread representing his broken body on the cross, the wine representing his blood. And in some ways, this is an act of spiritual warfare. This is an act of being reminded of the truth to combat lies. So the way communion works here at Hiawatha, you do not have to be a member of Hiawatha. You do not have to be a member of any church to take communion at Hiawatha. We only ask that you're a believer, that you are following Christ, trusting in him. And the reason we ask that 
is because Scripture asks that. Um, some logistics, so there's the bread in the middle, there's a smaller plate of gluten-free crackers for those who desire it, there's grape juice and wine, clearly labeled, uh, so take your pick of that. The band is going to come up, they're going to play four or five songs, and during, anytime during that time, feel free to come down and get communion. There's going to be people up front if you want prayer for anything, or it might not be something specific. Maybe you just want to be prayed for and you don't have anything specific. You can just say, you know, just pray for me, and they'll pray something. Uh, so if that's something you desire, uh, please take advantage of that. Um, yeah, I feel like I'm forgetting something. I can't remember it. So if I am, then whatever. So I'll pray again, and the band will come up, and we will take some time to worship through song and worship through communion. Jesus, thank you for your death and resurrection. Thank you for allowing us to have communion with God that Hebrews says, because you have died and rose from the dead, now without fear we can enter into God's presence. We can approach God the Father directly. We can boldly ask him for help when we have times of need and distress. I pray, God, uh, this week that we would be taking advantage of that, taking advantage of the fact that we have access to the Father. Jesus, thank you for everything you suffered and gave for our benefit. Thank you for crushing Satan at the cross and at the empty tomb, for winning that ultimate uh, battle of spiritual warfare for us. Help us to rest in that and not try and combat Satan on our own because it's futile and there is no need. Amen.